0: Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Ron here from Entitled to tell about his motivation and his story. Ron, can you please tell me about yourself and the company?
1: Thanks for having me. I'm Ron Neesom, CEO of Entitled. And I grew up in Dallas, Texas, moved to Israel in high school. And that's where I just started my journey in cybersecurity, did research and development for many years. And when Avi and I started our journey at Entitled, we were really drawn towards access management as what we joked is the boring part of cybersecurity, the part that no one wanted anything to do with but obviously very important from a risk perspective. When we looked at what companies were actually getting compromised for, it was boring old stuff, IT and DevOps, having access to production, getting compromised, or customer success, having access to all the customers' environments and something happening there. It was just weird that was still the core challenge of cybersecurity, not necessarily these next gen zero days. And so that's kind of where we started and we embarked on a journey to understand what we could do differently. What were the core challenges of the space? What we saw is that access management has two sides to it. Kind of the more governance, visibility, retrospective, compliance side of things. And the other is a more provisioning operational day-to-day of how employees get access to begin with. And we saw that the two were very much intertwined. Security always talked about governance and visibility, but the reason that was so hard, the reason that it's hard to remove access to someone is that the way they got it to begin with was often a manual process, a request, a ticket in service now, some free text, and who knows if that access should be taken away. And so basically Entitle is focused on automating the way that employees get access and enabling security teams to define policies around how employees get that access, what are they needed and putting guards up ahead of them before they can get that access. And that obviously cascades into a wide range of use cases, including just-in-time access, ephemeral access to sensitive resources, policy-based access, automating on offboarding and offboarding, and obviously visibility in retrospect and the ability to remove access. When it's no longer in use
0: you brought a very interesting point we speak a lot about zero trust magic and then you brought the idea that customer success has access to customer environments so we have vendors that scream zero trust and in the same time their support in the r d have access to customer environment and it's like where is the disconnect here what just happened here why we have this problem so i'm happy you guys are solving this problem and i'm really hope many vendors will understand how important this problem and also me as an architect i spend a lot of time with customers enterprise customers and i saw how john will join the company and when john changed positions he's still entitled to what he has now and what he has before and you know where i'm going with this so you had an idea you realize there's a big problem and you mentioned that you went to check with people so tell me about this validation process
1: Who did you guys talk to? Why did they talk to you? And what came out of it? It's a great question. It's a great question because I think that served us so well in really being focused on what do the customers actually need and where are their needs originating from? Like, what is the source of those needs? We started, frankly, just reaching out on LinkedIn to a lot of security professionals and IT and DevOps professionals, just asking them what their biggest challenges were and we had an inclination, a belief that there was something interesting and challenging in the access management space, again, because of the disparity between risk and where the focus. But we kind of started with this hunch and we just went out and interviewed a lot of very nice security professionals. We wouldn't be here if they hadn't taken the time to really talk through what their challenges were. I think that's one of the powerful things about the security space in general is people are open to comparing notes and the understanding that if we all come together and really focus on the next generation of issues, then that kind of served everyone, right? I think one of the mistakes that I made originally as a kid thinking about business is that in business, there's a winner and a loser, right? There's someone that wins the deal. I think what's been beautiful about the security space is people understand it doesn't work that way. It's a joint effort. We're both working together towards a mutual goal and that is securing the organization. And I think that's one thing that served well. The other thing that I think is amazing is the Israeli cybersecurity space in which people are very open to giving feedback and the understanding that entrepreneurship is the backbone, is the motor of the economy, makes it so that everyone kind of really understands that, hey, your success is my success, right? If we all work towards this together and it feeds forward, right? Like a lot of the early entrepreneurs in the economy got feedback and got help from their previous generation and I always say that I really do stand on the shoulders of giants. A lot of the early investors in Entitle are amazing entrepreneurs, the founders of Israel's biggest cybersecurity companies, and their guidance early on is what's enabled us to then go out and seek that feedback. So I'd say you know it's it's two things. One is the entrepreneurs and the just community of cybersecurity in Israel, but also generally outside of it, Israel as well. And frankly, if you're listening to this podcast, then next time a young entrepreneur reaches out to you you on LinkedIn and wants to get your feedback, think twice before you just decline and say next.
0: So you already mentioned that you raised money, but we'll talk about this very soon. From the people you guys discussed and talk, did you able to find any future customers, basically like design
1: partners? And here I'm really exposing secrets. So keep this between us. But I think one of the powerful things about this ideation. Is the conversation is so much easier to be had when you're not selling anything. When you raise capital and you have a product, then you're really you're a one-trick pony. You have a product, you're trying to sell it, and you're trying to find people that are in need of that product. But when you're so early on, that dialogue, that conversation, it's lower guard, it's easier to have the conversation, you really are looking to learn, you really are looking to understand where to focus that product. And those friendships then turn into their first customers. So all of our first customers were those people that we had spoken with early on. And frankly, I think I find a lot of success in maintaining that same approach today. We have our sales team. It's their responsibility to sell. But when I reach out to CISOs, my core job is to make sure that we're focused on the problems of tomorrow, to focus on what really customers need. And so being able to jump in and still continue to have that conversation without pushing the product, without selling just really trying to understand the needs of the industry have served us very well. And it's kind of like when you're really looking to solve a problem, when you're really looking to work together to collaborate on solving that issue, then, you know, you'll find people just by the way of the world that end up wanting to buy the product. Yeah, so
0: now you're in a position when you have an idea and you have some design partners, now you need money. What do you do next? Do you hiring people, do you creating something, or are you actually going and building a pitch deck?
1: That's a great question. It's a great question because we had made that mistake. So when we started early on, and actually I'll, I'll start with the caveat that this was what worked for us. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned in startups and entrepreneurship and cybersecurity is there is no right or wrong answer. So that everything has been proven to be right and ineffective the same amount of times. And every person has to blaze their own path What worked for us when we originally started, we went out and developed a product. We've developed a product in a different space, by the way, we'd pivoted since, but we developed a product, just Avi and I, something around compliance and SMB shares, and we went out to find customers for that product. And what we learned is that the first initial customers that we had found for this product did not represent what the future of a company could look like. And so when we went to raise capital, we realized, yeah, we found these like two, three first customers, but they had nothing to do with the rest of the industry. And they had a very niche issue and it was very services driven. And then we totally shifted our mindset. We realized that when in the investor's eyes, when you look at a startup, there are two types of risks. There is a technology risk and there's a go to market risk. And for a company, for a startup, as an investor, you try to put a weight on each side of that. What is the go to market risk? I'll give concrete examples. If I were to come to you and say, Hey, I have the cure for cancer as an investor. I wouldn't say, oh, who's going to buy it for the cure for cancer? I'd say, prove it to me. Prove it to me that you can cure cancer. And so in the permissions management space, I think when we realized that there was an issue there, the risk was not execution. We were both engineers. We both had a very good network of engineers. The question wasn't, could this, the entitled team build a kick product? The question was, prove to us that once you had built a product, there would be customers there to buy it and so our validation early on was focused completely on finding customers that cared about the problem and were willing to invest in solving it and that's our pitch deck early on was just a huge slide of a lot of logos of a lot of CISOs that we had spoken with that all were passionate about the issue were actively engaged in solving it some said they were willing to partner with us and some said they would, uh, but there was validation on the need for that in that they were pursuing that as a budgeted that line item. So that's how we had raised our early capital. Great. I'm kind of posing
0: here because you mentioned that you couldn't prove to the investors who will buy the product
1: or you couldn't prove to the investors if you're going to fix a problem. So it's not that we couldn't, it's just that we realized what we had to focus on. Okay. Um, we realized that in the investor's eyes, the main, Risk was not, could you build the product? The main risk that needed to be solved oh, for was bite. who would buy it? How much is this problem worth? And so that's a hundred percent of what we focused on. We said, let's assume we have the best product in the world. Assume we have you know, the best engineering team. And by the way, we ended up actually executing on that so that they were quote unquote, right to say that risk what was not the main risk. The main risk is, could we build a sales team? Could we find the customers? Could we figure out where the customers are? Could we articulate the value in a way? that the customers really understood in a quick way. So now you
0: have money, you need to hire people. Hiring people is hard, especially during COVID. Did you just went and hire your friends? Did you build some kind of understanding what is the team going to look like, what is the company principles, and what type of people you want to see?
1: It's funny that you asked that, because I actually stopped to think about that myself. And especially now that I moved to New York, Americans love the like values and creating the ideals of the morals, ideals of the company. And frankly, you know, I'd love to say that we of course we focused on that early on. Frankly, we didn't. What we focused on was hiring the best people that we could that were in our network. And what's oh, our-
0: I'll start with you right now. What best mm-hmm. mean? And I give I explain
1: what mean. Best mm-hmm.
0: could be I wanna hire somebody like Evgeny. I wanna mm-hmm. hire somebody that's similar to me, because I'm thinking best. But in reality, you don't want a bunch of Yevgenys. Then, then everybody gonna agree with Evgeny. you, You Even people with different views. Even people are gonna challenge you. Even you people are gonna tell you, No, this is not how it's gonna work. So, what the best mean?
1: That's good point. It starts with people that you're gonna have fun working with. People that are going to be fun to come into the office with. We had met amazing engineers that we knew were just the best of the best, but were assholes, frankly. And um, we thought we would get past it. And, you know, it becomes very obvious that end of the day, we're human beings too. And you want to work where it's fun to work and hiring people that are fun to work with is number one. I'd say just right alongside that is people that are passionate about actually solving the problem and actually being a part of the company. That it's not just a day job for them, that they are actively engaged and invested in the success of the company. And I think that's really hard these days. You know, there are a lot of jokes about millennials and how invested they are in their day job, um, a lot of them, there's a lot of truth to it too, and you really have to find the people that really care about being a part of a company and being part of its success. And going back to your original question, what was interesting is now that we have grown a bit and we hired an HR person, and now there are a lot of these questions that are coming on about what is the desired culture of the company, it was interesting to stop for a second and say, all right, we didn't define the values and cultures on the first day of the company. But what are the values and culture of the company that has evolved as a result of people that we hired? And I think the biggest thing that we noticed was the low ego culture. The fact that for everyone, no task was beneath them or above them. Everyone was willing to do anything. Everyone was writing QA tests. Everyone was writing things for the website, like everyone did anything to And no one's tried to delegate that the internal politics, the ego of the company was kept very, very, very low. And going forward, now that we are thinking more deliberately about characteristics of what does best look like, we've identified that as one of the biggest things that we want to maintain and is frankly hard to maintain as the company grows. And so that's something that we're even more strict about as we hire.
0: Now, companies growing, you have people, you're building code, you're going to ship and talk to customers. And you are doing basically founding led sales because you need to sell. You mentioned you were technical. How hard it
1: was to change technical mind and put a sales hat? It was hard. Again, I'd love to say, oh, it came naturally for me. No, it was hard. And I'll give a concrete example. I mentioned that Avi and we had both started with just developing a product. And there was a person that saw us from the side, a friend, an, an older friend. He looked at us and said, you know why you're developing a product? Um, this was before we raised what I mentioned earlier. And we said, why? He said, because you're technical people and you're very good at measuring technical progress and you don't know what business progress looks like. And so you find value in progressing from a technical perspective, but not from a business perspective. And we said, no, he's just old. He doesn't know what startups are like. Startups are technology. And it took us about two weeks where we had realized that he was completely right. And two weeks in, well, we wrote a book for ourselves early on. Um, there were a few, a few line items there. One was, uh, don't talk to investors because they're not going to give us validation on what customers need. Customers give you validation on what customers need. And the other was, don't write a line of code. And the reason was because we had forced ourselves to focus only on business value and only what customers needed and not on this feature or that feature that we felt good developing and that was cool to have as part of the, the spec sheet. And I think that shift in mindset early on ended up building into where we are today is very focused on what do customers need? How does the product roadmap feed into revenue and really focused on bottom line? What do the customers actually need and what do we need to solve for that? This makes sense.
0: With growing sales team and growing, I know, not just sales team, the development team. How do you manage tasks? How do you stay on top of all the tasks?
1: Maybe I'll just plug in a product. Superhuman is amazing for email management. (laughs) And uh, that's honestly where I found a lot of my success uh, being focused on the inbox. You know, I tried a lot of task management tools and the end of the day, having one place where I knew I could always rely on is my to-do list. That's what served me really well. So my today, my inbox is frankly my to-do list. And, And we tried a lot of different things, obviously. Delegation is a huge part, and how do you manage the tasks that other people own? A huge part of what I've been doing there is just, again, hiring people that you can trust to manage themselves. And the very flat hierarchy of the company has been enabled through the fact that we don't need to manage people we don't need to tell people what to do every day but rather they know what they need to do to progress the company to address their goals and they're the ones that kind of pull from the heap and say okay now we'll do this and now I'll take this initiative instead of us dictating to them or me telling every manager in the company this is what you need to do by this due date this makes sense interesting
0: i'm gonna go back to sales a bit because i think you mentioned you already hired the sales team as well and not just you the founders so you started to sell and you learn how to switch your technical mind to business mind now you need to let go and let somebody else to sell your baby because you know the baby the best tell me about this process what did you do how did you able to be quiet on a call and let somebody else lead the call or maybe
1: not even join the call so hard (laughs) you're right it is very hard but part of what differentiates between good and great startups is when you can articulate value that the customer needs And a five-year-old can dictate it. A five-year-old can go in and say, Hey, this is what you're, this type of company, you probably have these types of challenges. This is how we address those challenges. And this is how you see value from us quickly. And once you understood that recipe, then as I said, a five-year-old can do it. And now not to say anything bad about our sales team, they obviously have very important work to do, but I think that's what differentiates between When you look at the really great companies, you look at the companies that grew really quickly, the whizzes of the world, you know, the Palo Alto networks of the world, and finally, not only security companies, any startup that has really grown really quickly is companies that can articulate the need of their customer quickly and simply. And that's been a lot of the work that we've been doing up until the sales team has joined, but frankly, it's an ongoing thing. We always have to keep it up to date. Is what are the challenges that our customers have and being able to segment that based off of customer profile and industry and size of company and all these different parameters that could feed into a one-liner that says, these are your problems, this is how you fix them. And the whole steak dinner sales process that if everyone talks about that happened in the past, kind of feels like that's not a thing anymore. Everyone has zero tolerance for bullshit. I have my problems, either you solve them for me or you don't. It's, It's been a dry cut
0: you personally what do you do with failures so you have a failure you have a problem you need to comment maybe you have a bad day we all have bad days meditate running family wherever it is what is your personal secret for yourself to get back to
1: i think what has served first of all ben and jerry's a lot of ben and jerry's now i'm joking i you're I the first one for a- sure <laughs> Well, at least it's the truth, you know. First of all, I think it's okay to have bad days. It's okay to say, hey, you know what? Today's not going to be a good day. Today, I got kicked down a few times. Take the loss. Have a good night's sleep and wake up the next day trying, things, trying everything from scratch. Um, I think sometimes lending yourself to that and just accepting that as a fact of life is important. But maybe a bit more helpful than that is I would say that personally, I think that I feel bad about a failure when I feel that I didn't do my best. If I, and I'll give an example. I remember this in studying for tests in college and high school, right? If I worked my ass off studying for a test, I spent the whole week and I tried all the practice tests and then there was a test and it was really hard and I didn't do well. I didn't feel bad about myself because I knew I did my best and that's, I did my best. And that's what it came out to be. Now, if I spent the whole week partying and then I showed up to the test sleeping two hours and didn't do well on the test, then it really hurt. Then I was like, you know what, Ron, you should have done better. And I think in the startup. And the company and frankly, in life, that mindset has served us very well, because there are a lot of things that are just shit happens. Things are complicated. Luck is a thing. And sometimes things just don't go your way. But if we know that we did our best, then at least I'm confident and I can say, you know what? We did our best. And this is where we came out to be versus there are places where I look back and I say, you know what? We weren't sharp enough on that. Or, you know what? We should have been more diligent there. And then it's a learning process. Even that my dad has something that he told me once a long time ago, and it's really stuck with me. He says, a failure is the price of learning. And once you accept that and you say, Hey, you know what? Yeah, I should have done better. I should have been more diligent on that follow-up. Then that's the price of learning. But the second time you were diligent in the follow-up, then that's not the price of learning. That's just you being bad at your job. And there are places where I can say that that was the price of learning. We learned our lessons and the second time wasn't like that. And there are places where we failed two, three, four times before we really understood the lesson and it didn't happen again. And that's an ongoing process. I think, by the way, sign of an amazing investor. And one of the reasons that we've had amazing success with our investors, which I can only say great things about, is that's exactly their mindset. When we come to them and say, hey, we failed this POC or this customer didn't go through or we didn't, weren't able to hire this person that we had planned. All they care about is the learning process because we're building the company for years to come and when that's the focus it's okay to have a misstep or two here and there in this process but by the way if i come to them again and say hey we dropped the ball again for the same reason then it doesn't fly the same way makes sense
0: if you can go back a couple of years ago two years ago before you started the company would
1: you do anything differently so many things differently <laughs> so many things differently but i can say that There aren't a lot of things that given the knowledge that I had then, I would do a lot of things differently. I think given the knowledge I have today, uh, there are a lot of things I would do differently, even in terms of just uh, the small things. I'll give a concrete example. I think one of the things that I've learned is oftentimes a quick decision is better than the right decision. And the price of not making a decision is often worse than making the wrong decision and fixing it quickly. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the course of the last few years. And it's frankly, it's hard to take action on because every decision feels very important and you want to be right. I'd say that's one of the biggest things, uh, but obviously there's a, a ton of small things.
0: Makes sense. I didn't ask you this, but I'm wondering, because you did a lot of interviews in the beginning. When you build a product and when selling, did you actually continue in what you envision? Or in one point, the product pivot a bit
1: Cause you realize people need something else. I think the access management space has evolved a ton over the last two years. And so we've had to evolve with it. I'll give a concrete example. We started off one of the premises of the title early on is there are two categories of products. One is pan privileged access management. The other is IGA identity governance and administration. And one of the premises early on of the company is that those two categories will merge, and then in five, 10 years, the buyer will basically look for one solution that can kind of spread both sides of the provisioning process and the privileged access, because privileged access is basically just a subset of every other type of access. So there's no real reason that should be different. And that was, you know, the premise, we go out with this message and say, here's your one-stop shop. Here's the cloud native solution. Here's a quick deployment. And everyone will welcome us with open art. But at the end of the day, when you come to a company. There is a current stack there. There's someone that's invested a lot in the current solutions. There's someone that's developed an internal solution. Gartner only a few months ago started saying this, you know, they, and if Gartner is only now saying it, then, you know, it's going to take two, three, four, five five years until the industry really accepts it. And basically there's a difference between articulating the vision of where you want the company to be versus when you come to a company at a current state with its current state. What are the features? What is the value that are articulated? The difference between those is something that's taken us a while to understand, I think. It's a very different idea of pitching to an investor of what is the dream versus you come to a company today and understanding what they need. I'll give a concrete example, by the way, we've had a lot of success just talking about privileged access management. Instead of talking about the dream and how we think everything should be different and, and where the industry is going, we talk very concretely. You mentioned the customer success and zero trust. That got a lot of attention with the Okta breach recently. And instead of talking about everything, we talk about use case. And so we talk about how does your customer success team look like? Do they have access to all your customers' environments? How do your customers feel about that? Do you have any contractual obligations to show them when an internal team has access to that data? And so honing in on that like one use case, it ironically, we have more success in doing that versus talking about what the dream looks like. Makes sense.
0: We're going to transition to something called dark side. When you share stories, stuff that didn't work completely as you expected. You don't have to mention customers or names. It's a public information here, please. But show me or tell me some of your failures and what you learned from them.
1: Yeah, many to learn from. I have two that come to mind. One is the difference in needs. So we, our first customers were very tech forward companies, which makes sense. They're the ones that are more open to innovation, right? So I'll give an example, Lemonade, they're on our website, a consumer insurance company, very forward-thinking team. They love being on the edge of technology. And so they're early adopters and frankly had patience for a lot of the issues that come with working with a startup early on. Patience that the classic American CISO doesn't necessarily have. And so learning to manage the process with an enterprise account, has been different. So understanding and realizing that the tolerance and the patience for things that come up early on goes down as the company progresses and matures. And as we frankly target companies that are larger and more mature, Uh, we had a a company or very early on, which in retrospect, we, we bit off more than we could chew today. we'd be great with them a year ago. That wasn't the case. And they wanted a full on-prem deployment and they had a FedRAMP environment and a lot of these things and were like, oh, no problem. And then we rushed to do it behind the scenes. And a week after we had deployed, and you know, all the things that we love doing in startups, iterating quickly and delivering and promising a little bit more than what you actually have. And then running behind the scenes and actually delivering and developing it quickly. But we went out and gave it to the company and obviously it had its issues because we had done things very quickly and iterated very quickly. And that kind of customer was left with bad taste. And what we've learned over time is to be more open and say, hey, you know what? This is where we are today. This is what we can do very quickly. This is the timeline that we're gonna to need to do it. If you have the patience and appetite for that, great. And if not, we can revisit the conversation in six months after we've gone out and prioritized and developing that. And today, a lot of our pipeline is actually companies that we had deferred, companies that we have met six months ago, and they'd said, hey, these are core features that we're looking to have. And we said, you know what? We don't have that today, but we do plan on prioritizing that over the course of the next six months. Let's revisit the conversation in q4 in q1 in q2 and then i think the customer trusts you more as well because the customer knows oh this guy isn't bsing me this guy is telling me it's to me it's straight which i think is refreshing because we made that same mistake early on too thank you i'm going to ask you one last question did you
0: have, have a wow effect from a customer they saw a report maybe describe it like
1: 20 30 seconds what was the wow effect yeah one of the stories i'm more proud of was we had met the CEO of a company for ideation early on when we said, and we talked to him about access management and he said, you know what? No, one's ever going to buy this product. And he asked why he said, no, one's ever going to trust you. You're an early stage startup. And so how do you trust a startup to manage access to your environment? And so right after that conversation, I had messaged the, that company's head of security on LinkedIn. I said, Hey, would love to get your feedback on what we're working on. And that has security loved it, loved the product. He said, I've been thinking about this for a long time. You almost developed this internally. These are my needs we do whatever, AWS, self-service, just-in-time access, privilege access, like this. He was very, he was talking our language, like he, he had thought about this a long time before we had come to him. And they ended up being one of our first customers. And so th- that example, I think, is the small things that give us the confidence where sometimes it, the first impression isn't necessarily what's most important, but rather actually delivering and the best product to the table
0: Ron thank you very much it was a pleasure time ran very fast amazing story amazing conversation and good luck to you guys you guys do something very important
1: thank you getting out of blast
0: great Everybody is listening please continue listening we're gonna have more vendors more founders soon so thank you everyone